One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hello, everybody. Welcome to this special episode of the Group Chat Podcast from Virgin Media News. Gavin here, along with Richard and Zara. We wanted to give you a special update episode this Friday, January 26th, because we know that a lot of our listeners are particularly engaged in what's been going on in the Middle East. It's been something that we've been discussing a lot in the podcast for the last few months. And of course, the old business this week was dominated by the question of whether Ireland should be intervening in that case before the International Court of Justice taken by South Africa. Well, on that note, today there have been some pretty significant developments in the ICJ at The Hague. By 15 votes to two, the State of Israel shall ensure with immediate effect that its military does not commit any acts described in point one above. By 16 votes to one, the State of Israel shall take all measures within its power to prevent and punish the direct and public incitement to commit genocide in relation to members of the Palestinian group in the Gaza Strip. That's Joan Donahue, the president of the ICJ, reading an extract from a major ruling that was handed down by the ICJ today. Delighted to say we've been joined by Alana O'Malley, who is an associate professor at the Institute for History at Leiden University in the Netherlands. She's an expert in international relations, in international law and in the operation of the UN. So we were pleased to be able to speak to her earlier today and we started by asking her, in as much as she could do it in layman's terms, to explain exactly what happened in the court today. So a couple of weeks ago, South Africa took this case uh, against Israel in the International Court of Justice uh, on the basis of the Genocide Convention of 1948. And in their arguments that I think um, have been publicized quite widely, South Africa alleges that uh, there are acts of genocide being perpetrated by the Israeli military forces in their bombing campaign against Gaza. And that has um, resulted in the suffering of the Palestinian people. Um, And so what they asked of the International Court of Justice is an outcome of provisional measures. Um, So provisional measures are where the court can, in an urgent case, um, make specific um, orders over a short period of time, um, which means that they do not adjudicate the the judge, the judges do not adjudicate the case on its merits, but rather on the question of um, urgency and the question of whether or not the provisional orders that are requested actually match the arguments about the rights being violated. So that's a little bit complicated, but basically South Africa argued that this is such an appalling case of humanitarian catastrophe um, that uh, this is a representation that Israel is violating the rights of the people of Gaza under the Genocide Convention, and they should be protected under that convention. The South African lawyers argue that Israel is a party to the convention, so they agreed to the convention when it was um, uh, agreed in 1948, and they're violating their obligations to the convention by not protecting people uh, from um, acts of genocide, um, and that this is very urgent. And so 
this is a very quick turnaround that we had from the International Court of Justice. It's just um, over two weeks since the original case. Um, and what they have said is that they will grant some of the provisional measures that South Africa have requested. And I think the most important one of those is they've asked that Israel take all immediate necessary steps to prevent the perpetration of any acts which may be um, genocidal in nature committed by its military in its um, military campaign. Um, so it stops short of ordering a ceasefire or of ordering a complete cessation of military activity. Um, and there there are reasons that the court may have decided that way and we, we can um, perhaps explore that later if necessary. Um, but I think this is an important statement because what it does do is represent the fact that they accept the, the premise of uh, South Africa's case, that this is um, something that can now, we will now see the case go to merits, which means that they will adjudicate whether or not Israel has perpetrated a genocide. But for now, they accept that there's a plausible risk that what's happening in Gaza can amount to acts of genocide by the Israeli military. And so it's a huge victory for South Africa. And we hope that it gives rise to a change in course uh, in the military action and in the military campaign. So, Alana, just to bring some reaction from Palestinians at this point, um, as you say, the South African government is hailing this as a victory. Uh, they say that, you know, this is very much what they, they wanted out of this, that there's no way that Israel can comply with the other provisional measures, i.e. bringing in more uh, humanitarian aid and water, food, uh, without an actual ceasefire. But people uh, in the West Bank, as well as people who are linked to, who have been watching this, uh, there were screens set up in Ramallah, for example. Uh, there's huge frustration and resentment to this because what they wanted, um, Palestinians in Gaza and in the West Bank, was a ruling calling for a ceasefire. So there will be disappointment uh, with that. Do you think, as the South African government is saying, though, that based on what the measures that were have been outlined this morning by the ICJ, that there is scope for a ceasefire in this? Uh, if, you know, as you hear... We, by the, by the president of the court, um, that Israel has to come back within a month to show how it has complied with the ruling today. If it doesn't feel, if the court doesn't feel like it's complied with it, do you feel that there is still scope for a ceasefire to be ordered here? Yeah, but it's the first thing, I think it's difficult to order a ceasefire because one of the parties to the conflict is a state which is perpetrating military campaign, but the other party is Hamas, which is a non-state organisation. And Hamas don't fall within the jurisdiction of the court. So the court can't order a ceasefire between one party being a state and one party being not a state. So um, the likelihood that they may have ordered a ceasefire was always going to be quite low. I think rather maybe the disappointment is around that they don't use stronger orders and use stronger language to demand an end to the military activities. And I think the reason for that, again, I'm not um, an international lawyer and I cannot speculate on what the court accepted and what it didn't accept. But what we may um, remember is that under Article 51 of the UN Charter, Israel does have the right to self-defense. And a lot of their argument um, in defense was about their right to self-defense being protected by the UN Charter. Um, and so the court may have stopped short on ordering a complete cessation of military activities because of Israel's right as a state. Um, now, where um, that may be disappointing for people in terms of the rhetoric of the court, in terms of the actual orders, I think it's worth bearing in mind that this is still going to create huge public pressure on Israel and on Israel's allies to stop perpetrating this military campaign. And that's really key here, because now the whole conflict can be framed in genocidal terms, because the court has determined that there is a plausible risk of genocidal acts. 
So now the language, the rights, the rhetoric and the action about pre pre preventing genocide and responding to acts of genocide can be used in arguments to prevent Israel um, and to, to encourage Israel and hopefully to um, strongly encourage Israel to stop perpetrating this military campaign and also on Israel's allies who don't want to be, I've, I presume, and we can uh, think probably agree, a party to any conflict which may be genocidal in nature. And that's really why this is so important. Well, Anna, that's probably the interesting point, isn't it? Because it sort of adds a layer of pressure now, particularly for Joe Biden and the United States to be on the right side of all of this. And, you know, we can see just in the immediate reaction reaction from Benjamin Netanyahu, look, he's saying that, you know, this ruling was outrageous and goes on to sort of repeat what he said all along about Israel's fundamental right to defend themselves. And he's now describing this as discrimination against the Jewish state. But do you think that Joe Biden is under sort of a, a major pressure now to change his stance? I think so. I mean, I think that, and there's also two reasons for that. Firstly, the International Court of Justice is the highest uh, legal body that we have in terms of the international community. It's the, the primary judicial organ of the UN. Um, and it is um, part of, I mean, this judgment should be seen as part of all those General Assembly resolutions and um, Security Council resolutions that have come before the UN in the last couple of months on this. So it is very much um, part and parcel of the international community's collective response to the conflict. And that puts more pressure on the US position, which has been so far to largely veto most of the resolutions except for the last one for the Security Council before Christmas. Um, and so that really creates a very tight space for Joe Biden and for his administration in defending that US veto on any further resolutions at the UN. Now, that's also important in terms of um, the wider pressure on the United States, because for a long time, especially since the outbreak of the conflict in Ukraine, the United States has led the crusade about the protection of the rules-based international order and the system of liberal values um, as a kind of a secondary impulse. And this puts them in a totally contradictory, contradictory position because they're, they've been advocating for the rules-based international order um, and the requirement of action to defend the people of Ukraine. Um, and they have you know, used a lot of political capital to drum up support for that, um, but they have not done the same thing at all. And they, in fact, they're on the completely the opposite side in this, in this case. So this really exposes a huge kind of crack of contradiction in the US foreign policy uh, administration's approach to these different conflicts. Um, and that can be to do with all kinds of um, different domestic pressures. But ultimately, it's very damaging for the kind of viability of this Western-led liberal international order. Mm. Um, and, and, and that's really what South Africa and the other global South states are counting on as well, this kind of crack in the consensus. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
Just on that pressure on the US, it is worth noting for our listeners that there was a poll conducted by YouGov yesterday which showed that, you know, while a lot of people might be disappointed with what the ICJ has put out today, in the court of public opinion, there is a big shift happening. At 35% of Americans believe that Israel is committing genocide in Gaza. 36% say it isn't, and 29% are undecided. Um, ben Gavir, uh, who is the far-right um, member of the he's a national security minister in the Israeli government, he has mocked the ICJ after this, saying simply, Haig Schmeig. So despite all the pressure that is already there on Joe Biden and his administration, despite that growing pressure and that international consensus that Israel can't continue to go about doing things the way that it has been in Gaza, there is a risk here that Israel can just ignore all of this, isn't there? There is a risk, but I think that the political realities are just going to become more difficult for Israel now. Because as you rightly pointed out yourself, it's not just the international community that are condemning Israel and its supporters in this campaign against Gaza. It's also the domestic publics in these international in, in these countries, right? In the United States, you, you mentioned 35%, but I think the percentage of people who believe that um, Israel is perpetrating a, a genocidal campaign against Gaza uh, in the United States um, are in the UK and perhaps also even in Germany, maybe even higher. So this is one of those kind of very strange situations where um, a lot of Western governments are totally out of step with the public opinion on this conflict in their own country. And that creates even more domestic pressure that increases the likelihoods that they will use their influence over Israel for the purposes of moderation. And it may be the case that um, Israel, Israeli officials can make these statements about, um, you know, the Hague not mattering and the International Court of Justice not being relevant. Um, but the fact is that, you know, is this is also kind of a, a brutal irony for Israel's position, because Israel was created, of course, because of the perpetration of a horrific genocide against the Jewish people. And likely, there is kind of a consensus that, you know, this is an incredibly um, dark uh, period for Israel's history, given its um, original kind of purpose and how it was created. That now it's in this position of being essentially um, investigated for the perpetration of genocide against the Palestinians. So I think public pressure matters, matters a lot, even when you have these kind of outrageous and defensive statements. Um, and particularly if you um, put any of these statements into the context of what's happening, it's very hard to be persuaded by um, simply saying that the international community or the international legal system is just irrelevant. You mentioned at the start, Alana, some of what's going to happen now where the, the two parties in this South Africa and, and Israel are going to put forward more substantive arguments. Um, the, as you might know, there's been a lot of uh, debate here in Ireland about the point at which Ireland should be getting involved and some motions that were in the door this week saying that Ireland should have gotten involved before now. Is that time coming where, procedurally speaking, is there a window now where in the near future Ireland might be invited or Ireland might be able to make an intervention on one side or another? Yeah, so there there is um, an opportunity now for Ireland to um, support South Africa's case. And I think um, the Irish government, um, you know, indicated that they were waiting for a judgment. Now the judgment has been, the provisional measures have been issued. So this is a moment when Ireland can um, indeed come out in support of the South African case and, and kind of, you know, that political support is very, very important. Um, it's also kind of worth bearing in mind, of course, that, you know, Ireland has uh, modelled itself internationally with its internationalism on being uh, a country that um, supports the global south, uh, that supports human rights, that preserves um, 
um, kind of the, the liberal kind of order and, and a lot of the, the campaign that Ireland um, put forward to get a seat on the UN Security Council and non-permanency a couple of years ago was precisely about that kind of a human um, uh, kind of um, impulse of Irish internationalism that we're really interested in kind of economic and social development and peace. And also that Ireland has this unique history as a divided country um, that has suffered through um, a, a war out of which we produced a peace process and we, we, you know, lived with divided communities. So, I mean, Ireland is uniquely positioned, in fact, um, to um, you know, trade on those bonds of solidarity that the Irish government has constructed Irish internationalism on, uh, to now um, flex its um, kind of historical relevance and its particular take on this conflict to provide support and to kind of really go forward with that solidarity um, and support South Af the South African case. And whether or not that leads to Ireland making an intervention at the court really depends on, you know, how this case is brought forward. But certainly politically, this is a very kind of crucial moment. I really um, uh, hope that the Irish government um, reconsider their position on this. I suppose the reality for people today, Alana, is that or people in Gaza, I should say today, is that they were sort of hoping that this would be something that would lead to a change quite quickly. Whereas I suppose what we're taking away from it today is that it's going to take a little bit longer than maybe people might have hoped. Um, and I'm reading particularly just the, the lines here from Hani Mahmoud from Al Jazeera, who's just reporting from from Rafa in Gaza, saying that, you know, people feel sort of frustration and resentment in the aftermath of the ICJ um, today. And they're saying that, you know, people just want this to end because they are tired, exhausted and want to go back to their homes and remaining family members. They want to go back to a normal life. But this statement did not give them that. And that is why they are restless. And I suppose it's easy sometimes to forget maybe that, you know, what seems like a day to us and, and a, what's another couple of weeks, people might say, you know, that they're going to, that hopefully progress will be made in a couple of weeks. But for every single hour that passes by for people on the ground in Gaza, the death toll rises. Yeah, and I think the court emphasised that pretty well. I mean, it was really surprising, in fact, that the, um, the president of the court read out these very detailed descriptions of the difficulty of conditions of life in Gaza and use the evidence that's been um, um, put together by UN teams and UN agencies. And she really highlighted, you know, the humanitarian crisis on all kinds of different levels. Um, and, and this was really, I think, to stress the urgency of this problem uh, in order also to justify the court's measures um, and jurisdiction, um, but also to stress the urgency for the parties involved, hoping, of course, that that will lead to urgent political action. Um, and as well as that, you know, it's worth bearing in mind that even if the courts had um, made a stronger ruling on the Israeli military campaign. Um, you, it would still be met with the same rhetoric, most likely from uh, Netanyahu and some of his um, government members about the, the court's relevance. Um, and so what's really important here is that it's not just the Israelis who hear the verdicts, but it's also Israel's supporters around the world, um, and particularly those allies that they rely upon for the military assistance to actually perpetrate this bombing campaign um, and although it may seem disappointing to the people who are most directly and deeply affected by this crisis I do hope that and I do believe that this will kind of hasten the path towards peace because it really gives another emphasis and kind of boost to the international community and another tool in the box to try to alleviate the conflict and bring about um, some kind of resolution. That's the interesting point on it is that you know if the West and if Israel's international backers, particularly the US, do believe in rules-based international order, 
well, then there would be pressure put on Israel to stop the violence in Gaza as it stands, going along with what the ICJ has said today. But the only problem with that is that there's been no real evidence that is actually going to happen at the, up until this point. We've had, you know, multiple, you know, off the record reports from within the United States government about how they're not happy with how the war is going, that they're not happy about the high civilian death toll. And all the while, you've heard more and more things coming from Netanyahu's government about how they've effectively, they've, they've, they've relished being able to go to the press and say, we told the Americans we're never going to accept a Palestinian state. They're relishing the fact that they're standing up and doing this themselves and they're giving no regard to what the world may say about them. Um, these, every, it seems like most Israeli cabinet ministers have now had some uh, sort of comment on the ICJ ruling on interim measures at this point in time. And most of them say that they're going to keep on firing ahead. They believe that this is a just war and this is going to continue. But I suppose that is going to be the one of the most interesting things to come out of this is how the West stands in terms of credibility to the wider world if they don't push for Israel to actually take heed of any of this. Yeah, I think the West credibility is very much in question here and has been since the conflict broke out, especially because of that contradiction between their position on other conflicts and their position on this one, especially the United States. I think, I think the second thing to bear in mind is that, you know, as much as there is a very close relationship between the United States and Israel, to what extent will the United States go to stand in violation of an ICJ order, even towards one of their allies, especially on the grounds of the Genocide Convention? I mean, this is a really serious um, position that the administration find themselves in now. Um, and the third thing to bear in mind, of course, is that we, we, we really have to bear um, uh, the the. the idea of regional escalation in view here. So, I mean, on the one hand, while this is being kind of responded to these outcomes in the West and in, in, in Gaza, of course, um, it also has implications for all of um, the Arab supporters um, who really um, support this case. And we, we've seen, you know, that it is a tinderbox what's um, taking place here, not just in Gaza, but also in the West Bank, as you pointed out, along the kind of Lebanon border. Um, and it really creates a schism. And now a lot of the Arab states have um, really the kind of opinion of the court on their side of saying that what Israel is doing, you know, may be defined as possibly genocidal. Um, and so that really also um, gives them a kind of a, a greater kind of onus in this debate. And that will be uh, something for the Western powers to think about because they may support Israel, but they don't want a regional conflict. And now this is um, even uh, a greater likelihood, I think. Thank you again to Alana O'Malley, Associate Professor at the Institute for History at Leiden University in the Netherlands. I really appreciate the guidance of someone who is clearly an expert in the area to be able to shed a little bit more concrete light on exactly what's going on and what might happen from here. No doubt there will be a lot of domestic and international reaction to this ruling and we'll be raising some of the questions about what happens next in our regular weekly episode, which will be back again on Virgin Media 1 next Wednesday night at 11 o'clock. And again, of course, here in your podcast feeds next Thursday morning. Until then, thanks very much for listening and have a good weekend. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. 
Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.